0: Please, people of God, turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 2. Our focus will be on verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, but for the sake of context, we'll begin reading in chapter 2. Chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 6. Paul warns us to be on guard against empty philosophy and legalistic piety before he says what he says in chapter 3. Colossians 2 at verse 6, this is God's holy word. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And now our text for this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen in his work on spiritual mindedness asks his readers the question, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? Or to state the question another way, what is the, the default setting of your mind? When, when you're driving home from work and the traffic is light, when you're just cruising along, or when the kids are finally down for their nap and you're, you're sitting in the living room and you're folding the laundry, what are you thinking about? Where, where does your mind most immediately go? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? It's a sort of a haunting question, isn't it? Because how we answer that question likely says a great deal about us, doesn't it? And what the answer to that question probably says for many of us is that our hearts and our minds are fixed on earthly things when they should be fixed on heavenly things. Now, there are some who might raise the argument at this time and caution against this notion by saying, well, those who are so heavenly-minded, well, they're, they're of no earthly good. That objection has been raised by some. And yet, if you read on into the rest of the chapter, what you'll soon discover is that those who are heavenly-minded are those who do the most earthly good. For if your head is in heaven, as it were, that's going to have a profound impact on your hands and your feet here on the earth. If, if your head is in heaven, if the affections of your heart and if the, if the thoughts of your mind are, are fixed on Christ and, and governed by Christ the blessedness of that is going to to bleed into every aspect, into every area of your life. And so Paul begins this next section in his letter with a summons to this very thing. If then you have been raised with Christ, says Paul, seek those things that are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, he says. And the entirety of your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And so much so that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In these four verses, Paul is is setting before his readers and before us the gospel pathway to, to spiritual security and maturity. And this is the, the burden of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 1, he, he tells his readers that he writes these things in order that he might present everyone mature in Christ. That's Paul's aim in this letter to present you and me mature or complete in the Lord Jesus. And having just addressed the paths that lead only to ruin, namely the paths of, of empty philosophy and legalistic piety. Paul now sets before our eyes the path that leads to glory. And yet in so doing, Paul is not only seeking to remind his readers of, of where they're going, but he's also seeking to remind them of who they are. You see, whoever these false teachers in Colossae were, they were not only seeking to rob the Colossians of their security, but they were also seeking to, to rob them of their identity, their their insistence on various rites and rituals and religious experiences was causing some in the church to think that they were, that they were lesser. Certain false teachers were asserting that if you really wanted to, to attain spiritual fullness, if you really wanted to know God's favor, then you had to abstain from certain foods and drinks. If you really wanted to know God's blessing, then you had to participate in certain feasts and festivals. And, and if you didn't do these things well, then you were judged to be lesser. But What did Paul say in chapter 2, verse 20? He said, if with Christ you, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to all these regulations, these legalistic regulations? And by asking that question, Paul was essentially saying, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that that you have died with Christ and that since you have died with Christ, you've been set free in Christ? Don't you recognize that because you've been judged righteous in the sight of God, you no longer need to worry about the judgments of the world and the judgments of others? Paul was reminding them of who they were in the Lord Jesus. And this is the thread that Paul... Is picking up on again here in verses one through four of chapter three, where he reminds them, he, where he reminds us that we have not only died with Christ, but that we have also been raised with Christ. As Paul says elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? If anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. Behold, the, the old has passed away and, and the new has come. Your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And this truth, this reality, is what Paul is going to press upon us here in this chapter. Because I am in Christ, I am no longer who I used to be. For in Christ, I've been made into something new. Because my life is is hidden with Christ and God. I I have a a new identity and, and a new mentality and a new destiny. And these are the three things I'd like for us to consider together this morning. A new identity, a new mentality, and a new destiny. In the subsequent sections of this chapter, Paul is going to to work through some of the practical implications of these things. For Paul is careful, you see, not only to, to defend against legalism, but also to defend against antinomianism as well. For if you are really are a new creation, if you really are in Christ Jesus, then you're necessarily going to begin to live in a whole new way. As, as we'll see this afternoon in verses 5 and following, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're going to mortify your sin you read on the chapter, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're going to mirror your Savior. If, you're, if you were to read on to verses 18 and following, if you're in Christ, if you're a wife, you're going to submit to your husband. If you're in Christ, if you're a husband, you're going to love your wife. If you're in Christ, if you're a child, you're going to submit to your mom and dad. If you're in Christ, you're going to work heartily as to the Lord and not for men If you're going to chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, if you're in Christ, then you're going to continue steadfastly in prayer, and you're going to be watchful, and you're going to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The the practical implications of our being united to Christ are many. They are are numerous. But before we consider those practical implications, we must first understand that there is a, a gospel grammar to the Christian life. We must always remember and and never forget that the imperative commands of the Christian life of gratitude always proceed from the indicative realities of of God's grace. Our status before God, our status in Christ, our status is the basis for our service and not the other way around. We so easily forget that. We often get that all turned around and, and twisted in our minds. So that we think our status is determined by our service. We sometimes begin to think that, that God loves me more when I'm doing really well in the Christian life, and, and God loves me less when I'm doing poorly in the Christian life. But the gospel grammar of this chapter is what sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion in the world. Our status is the basis of our service and not the other way around. And so, before Paul sets before us that which we must do, he first reminds us of what God has done. Before he calls us to do these certain things, he, he reminds us of, of who we are. He, he speaks to our new position, to our new status. He tells us of our new identity. And what Paul is really doing in these first four verses is simply echoing the very same truth that he set before his readers at the very start of his letter. Because how does Paul address these believers in Colossians 1, verse 2? How does Paul write to these believers at the very outset of his letter? He writes to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. You see, for Paul, this is what what lies at the very heart of the Christian life. In the Christian faith, although we live in Canada, although we live here in Ontario, the true realm of our existence is in the Lord Jesus. Not only have we died with him, we've also been raised with him so that our lives are hidden with him and so that Christ himself is our life. And what this means, people of God, is that when God sees you, he no longer sees you for who you used to be. When God sees you, he doesn't see you in light of all your sins and your failures and your shortcomings. But when God sees you, he sees his own beloved son in whom your lives are hidden. What a great source of encouragement this should be for us here and now. To be sure, the implications of this reality have a magnificent bearing on our future. Our new identity means that we also have a a new destiny. But the implications of this reality touch down in our lives already here and now. Because we live in a world and and in a culture where this whole question of, of identity is one of the biggest questions that a person faces, isn't it? people looked into the mirror and they asked themselves the question, who am I? Who am I? And the answers, of course, vary. There are, there are some in the world who are very sure of themselves. They, there are some whose identity is entirely grounded in their success. They've, they've climbed their way to the top. Others envy them, wish they could be them. That's their identity. But on the other hand, there are others who know nothing of that experience at all. There are some who have, who have tried their best, but they failed at every turn. They got bad grades all their life. Every business they tried went belly up. And that's what they're known for, for being Failures. They look at others around them who are more successful than them and they say, well, that, that guy, he's a real somebody, but me, I'm, I'm a nobody. This is their identity. But then there's also a third category, a growing category, it would seem, consisting of those who look in the mirror and say, who am I? And they do not even know the answer. They don't really know who they are, but the world around them tells them who they perhaps may be. Perhaps you're a person who's trapped in the wrong body. Perhaps you're a person who's trapped in the wrong species. Perhaps if you just make this change or make that change, perhaps if you change your looks and change your attitudes, then then maybe, maybe you can go from being a nobody to being a real somebody. And as ridiculous as such notions may be, we should have nothing but compassion for such people. Because we as Christians, we, we know who we are. We know that, that we are the, the children of God, loved by the Father from before the foundation of the world. We take heart in the knowledge that God that God made us to be who we are and that we are His. We know who we are, but they don't. They're the, like the blind following the blind. They're like sheep without a shepherd moving toward the, the edge of a cliff. And we of all people should have sympathy for such people. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. By nature, all of you were enslaved to sin and you didn't have a clue. But as Paul says, you are bought with a price and you are brought into the Lord Jesus, who said to you, I'll tell you who you are, you're mine. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The apostle is drawing out the further implications of what he had already said in the previous chapter. In verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul said that you have been buried with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul has Paul has reminded his readers of that which was emblematic of their baptism, that when they came as individuals and families to be baptized, they were professing to the world that which God was was saying to them in their baptism, namely that their old lives were being left behind, and that who they were going to be from that point forward would be defined and determined by the Lord Jesus. Jesus. In fact, it is not uncommon in some places in the world that when an adult convert comes forward to be baptized, he might often take upon himself a a whole new name to to draw this sharp line of distinction. I I am no longer who I used to be. I am a new person. I am now in Christ Jesus. And although the world may not see it, Although this new identity is hidden in Christ, it's hidden, It's, a, it's a myst- just as the mystery of the cross is, is hidden to those who are perishing, this is who we now are. In Christ Jesus. Whatever sins may have marred your identity in the past, or their failures may have defined you before, are now covered and hidden by the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the words of one pastor, your spiritual bank account is filled with his goodness, and you are so secure in God's heart that he has already granted you Christ's heavenly status. Isn't that how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2? Where he says it already now, You and I are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You have new status. You have a new position, new power at your disposal, resurrection power at your disposal. Notice in the second place this morning that this new identity necessarily leads, it works within us a new mentality. Those who have been raised with Christ, says Paul, in the middle of verse 1, are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says they are to set their minds on things that are above and, and not on things that are on earth. And what Paul is essentially getting at here is that those who are in Christ Jesus begin to see the world, and they begin to see their place in the world in a whole new light. Our identity shapes our mentality in such a way that that the affections of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds are more and more conformed to this Jesus who is sitting at God's right hand. And these are the two ideas that the words seek and set are getting at. When Paul summons us to, to seek the things that are above, that word translated as, as seek is a word that has to do with desire. It's a word that has to do with with the affections and desires of your heart. Paul, of course, recognizes the, the spiritual void that exists in the heart of man. He understands that in man's sin and misery, he seeks to, to fill that void with a whole host of earthly things. He, he sets his heart on things like sex and money, on, on power and popularity. He sets his heart on those things. But he's never satisfied. He remains empty. As we heard in our call to worship, Isaiah 55, man seeks those things that that do not satisfy. But those who are in Christ, says Paul, must learn not only to find their identity in Christ, but also their fullness in Christ. They must yearn more and more for him recognizing that as a psalmist says in Psalm 16, he makes known to us the path of life and that in his presence there is fullness of joy and and that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And it is this deep desire for him that must control the orientation and and direction of your lives. The the verbal tense that Paul uses here when he calls us to, to seek the things that are above is is a tense that points to something that is, that is deliberate and ongoing. There is a need, says Paul, to continually and conscientiously nurture these longings of the heart by seeking the Lord Jesus and all his glory and grace. To recognize that he alone can, can fill the void. That as St. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Something we see illustrated throughout the Psalter, isn't it? David says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In Psalm 53, David says, God, your steadfast love is better than life. What does Asaph say in Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he himself is my portion forever. For we can never rest content, says one pastor, until we are finally and fully with him. And so in verse 2, Paul moves on from the disposition of the heart to to the focus of the mind. When he says, set your minds, set set your minds on things that are above and not on things of the earth. Set your minds on Christ. Set your minds on, on the things of Christ's kingdom. And here too, the verbal tense conveys that idea of a deliberate, ongoing activity. To quote one pastor, there is nothing casual or careless about what Paul has in view here, but rather he's setting before us the need to reorient the whole way that we think. Paul expresses the idea similarly in Romans chapter 12, and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's how Paul begins the the section of gratitude in in Romans after spelling out the the wonder of his grace for nine chapters, he says, your minds need to be transformed by these things. For it's only as your thought patterns are transformed and, and tuned to Christ that your lives can more and more be conformed to Christ. If then... You have been raised with Christ. And when Paul says if, we must understand that Paul is not speaking hypothetically here. He's speaking consequentially. It might better be translated as, as since then. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. Is this your mentality this morning? There are so many people in this world whose minds are set on earthly things. There are sadly so many who consider their lives and the value of their lives to be determined by what they've accomplished and the things that they have. Paul laments that very thing, doesn't he, in Philippians 3 when he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. There are so many in the world who consider their lives and the value of their lives to be determined by what they've accomplished and the things they've acquired. I believe it was Warren Buffett who once said, at the end of the day, whoever has the most toys wins. That's the mentality of the world. But what does God say? God says that their end is destruction. Where have you set your minds? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What is the default setting of your mind? Where is your heart this morning? What are you thinking about? Right now, what are you seeking? Parents, if someone were to ask your children, what do your mom and dad live for? What are they seeking? What would your children say? If someone were to ask your friends or your coworkers, what what does that man, what does that woman live for? What does he or she value more than anything else in the world? What would they say? Paul urges us here to seek with our hearts and to set our minds on things that are above, where our Savior is seated at the right hand of God. Christ, we know, is is seated in heaven. He's seated in heaven because there's nothing left for him to do to accomplish our salvation. His work of redemption is finished. Christ has has gained eternity for you. And so Paul is summoning us here to, to live with eternity in view to do as the Apostle Peter says, to, to exercise that, that faith on tiptoes, that living hope that, that peers over all the things of this world to the, to the glories of the world to come. Paul's calling us to live with, with eternity in view, to, to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Paul is summoning us to recognize that that whose we are is what now determines who we are. But that who we are must have a profound impact on the way we are, on on what we love and how we think, on what we long for and what we strive for. Our new mentality is needs to be shaped by our new identity. And this Paul presses home further still in verse four because if, as if a new identity were not reason enough, what does Paul set before us in verse four? He sets before us a new destiny. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. By nature, you and I were destined for death and damnation. But in Christ, says Paul, you and I are destined for glory. In contrast to those who set their minds on earthly things, in contrast to those whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction, what does Paul say? In Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the same power by which He subjects all things unto Himself. Because we share in Christ's identity, we can be sure that we will share also in His destiny. That's how United to Christ, you and I are. Yes, as I said earlier on, your true identity and your eternal destiny may be hidden from the world. To the outside world, Christians are little and they are insignificant. But what does John say in 1 John chapter 3? He says, beloved, we are God's children already now. We are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we know that we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. As C.S. Lewis once said in his address on the weight of glory, it is a serious thing to keep in mind that the dullest And most uninteresting person you've ever talked to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be tempted to fall down and worship. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be made like him. Because we'll see him as he is in all his glory and grandeur. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. How amazing it is for us to recognize that in this world of death and decay, where everyone dies, where our culture seems to be rotting from the inside out, we have a living Savior and a lasting promise. In Christ, we have a a glorious guarantee that, that even as he was destined for glory, Christ, he was born in that lowly cattle stall. But we know he was destined for glory. So too you and I are destined for glory. We're glory bound. We, of course, know there are more promises in the Bible than we can count, but all those promises find their Fulfillment in what Paul is saying to us here in Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall appear with him in glory. This is why we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. You're no longer the author of your destiny, but Jesus is the the author of your destiny. No power in hell, no scheme of man can pluck you from his hand till he returns or calls you home. Here in the power of Christ you stand. That's how united to Christ you are. This is the message of the gospel congregation that if you've come to Christ in repentance and faith, if you've come to him, then no longer, no longer are you destined for death and damnation, but you're destined for glory. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seat at the right hand of God. Set your minds on these things and not on the things of this world. For you have died and your life is hidden with him. And when he appears, you're going to appear with him in glory. It struck me as I was preparing this sermon that Paul is really calling us to long for the very same thing that Christ longs for. As much as you and I ought to Uh, To long for Christ and to be with Christ, that longing is only possible because Christ himself longs to be with us. This, you may know, is what our Lord prayed for. With Gethsemane and, and Golgotha before him, what did Jesus pray in John 17, 24? He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus was going back to his Father. Heaven was going to receive him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet Jesus prays, I want my people to be with me. I want them to behold my glory. If this is what you and I will be eternally captivated by in the future, then shouldn't these things begin to captivate us already now in the present? As we do it, Paul is something us to do. As we set our hearts and our minds on Christ, we can be sure that Christ has set his heart. He has set his mind on us. And he himself longs for the day when you and I will see him in all his glory and grace. Indeed, says John, a day is coming when we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. Night will be no more and we will need no Light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light, and we will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you now as those whose lives are hidden with the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Of new identity in Him, that we need not be defined by our successes or by our failures, but that our identity is determined by the Lord Jesus, whose righteousness has become ours by faith. Lord, may this be our confidence when we have fallen short of your glory when we've sinned against your majesty, that even then, do not love us less or delight in us less, but that you delight in us in the Lord Jesus and bid us to come to you again, repentance and faith. Father, we pray that you would work this new mentality within us more and more, that we would be a congregation of believers who seek the things that are above, who have our minds fixed on Christ and on the coming of his kingdom, And as we endure the trials and tribulations of this life, may we live with eternity in view in the knowledge that ours is a new destiny, that we are destined for glory. Even so, we pray, come. Come, Lord Jesus.